Hello there and welcome back to my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick. At the beginning of the week, it's incredible. I just wanted to get back on schedule with this show and get it out to you at the, be- at the start of the week instead of towards the end. Because you may have other stuff to do during the weekend. I'm able to bring you these shows thanks to my patrons. And if you want to join them and support me in my mission in media, both audio and video, then take a look at patreon.com slash fatherroderick. And if you become a patron, if you are able to, you know, pitch in with a few bucks per month, then you get access to a special podcast that I record specifically for the patrons and that is not available anywhere else. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. You know, nowadays I'm almost glad that the weekend is over. For most people, most normal people, the weekend is the time that they get to relax, that they can step away from work. For me, it's the opposite. The weekends are filled to the brim with activities, with work, with uh, social activities. And it's actually when I have to work, like today and tomorrow and Wednesday, I'm just sitting here in the office editing quietly. That's where I start to relax a little bit more. This weekend was uh, mostly filled with masses, parish masses. I've got three now. Most of the time I've got three masses on sun- on Saturday and Sunday. And and then uh, on Saturday after, was it Saturday or was it Sunday? No, it was Saturday after. No, wait, huh? Wait, I, did I totally pass out? No, it was on Sunday? Yeah, Sunday after Mass. I get confused. Normally, I play board games on Saturdays, but this time it was on Sunday So after the second Mass. I went to see uh, Sebastian and uh, two of my other friends, and we played a game. I, I used to play with that group, uh, like a, a, a serialized game, a game that y- you have to play over, over the period of months, um, which, was called, which is called Madara. But um, it's, it's kind of a complicated game. It's not really my style, so I, uh, I, I kind of handed it over to Inga. <laughs> she is uh, much better at this, this type of game. And I said I was available for just, you know, um, incidental gaming sessions. And so I was invited for, to play Paladins of the West Kingdom, which is a type of game that I actually enjoy quite a bit. It's resource management games. So in board games, you have various genres. You've got these more adventurous games where you play a storyline, and uh, sometimes you team up with the rest of the players against um, the game itself. So um, that is a, a fun game. Then you've got these dungeon crawler games. That is kind of what Madara is. So it's ma- mostly taking place in dungeons. There may be an overarching sto- storyline, but... Most of the time, the game itself is just you walk around in a dungeon and you have to open treasure chests and 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 uh, destroy uh, enemy creatures. And sometimes, well, almost all the time, there's a boss fight towards the end. And sometimes the game will surprise you by spawning new awful creatures and monsters that you have to defeat together. And then what I enjoy about the, the genre... Uh, of, of resource management games is that there is actually not a, not a wrong or, or a right way to play it. Um, you have to uh, to to put dudes uh, on the map and they will work for you during a round and produce um, materials, army. Sometimes uh, you can. You can use them to do specific actions, for instance, to fight. And then for every round, you get points. And those points add up. And then at the end of the game, you calculate the number of points that you've gained. And then it's only at that point that you see who has won and who has played the game the best. Um, I like the versatility of these games. And uh, you can try a strategy and then play it another time. And you may have picked up some some uh, ideas from the first time that you played it, and you get better at it over time. You get more a hang of, of what is the best way to um, to play this game and to use my resources. So this, this Paladins of um, the West Kingdom is a game that takes place in the 9th century in West Francia, Francia. Uh, and here's the description of the of the publisher of the game. Uh, so it's set 
circa um, 980, despite recent efforts to develop the city, um, outlying townships are still under threat from outsiders. Saracens scout the borders, while Vikings plunder wealth and livestock. Even Byzantines from the east have shown their darker side. As noble men and women, players must gather workers from the city to defend against enemies, build fortifications, and spread faith throughout the land. Fortunately, you are not alone. In his great wisdom, the king has sent his finest knights to help aid in, your, in our efforts. So ready the horses and sharpen the swords, the paladins are approaching. <laughs> the aim of paladins of the West Kingdom is to be the player with the most victory points. That is a very common uh, mechanism, game mechanism in board games, especially these, these resource-based games. Points are gained by building outposts and fortifications like walls around your city, by commissioning monks and also by confronting outsiders. And what I liked about this particular game is that you 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 have a number of enemies at the borders, uh, represented by by you know cartoon-like characters on cards, and you can choose what to do. You can either confront them with an army and fight them, and if you if you uh, well you actually you you can't be defeated but in order to win you always have to have a certain combination of workers or soldiers and uh, sometimes also you have to pay some extra money and then you can win over that person and that will give you certain rewards that are on the card but in this game because it's set in you know the 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 at the height of the Middle Ages, you can also try to convert them. And to convert them, you need priests. So you've got these little black tokens that represent priests. You can send them to the battlefield, and instead of, you know, <laughs> killing your, your enemy, you can just win them over. And you've got a number of, of types of, of enemies. Um, so you've got uh, Muslims, uh, you've got Byzantine enemies, you've got, um, what else was it? The um, Oh, the Vikings, so pagan enemies. And you can convert them, and you get different types of rewards. And uh, if you convert an enemy, you can also add them to your to your town, to your kingdom, and they will also count towards the victory points at the end. And then you can get, sometimes you have these, these specific cards that will give you, you know, extra points for, for instance, if you've converted uh, Byzantine um, enemies, I had like three Byzantine enemies that I was able to convert, and so that, that gave me like extra victory points toward, toward the end. It was a lot of fun. Um, and as the game progresses... Uh, and, and you have seven rounds, um, you will slowly increase your faith, your strength, and your influence. And that will also affect the final score. So there are some, some uh, goals that you can reach. If you get faith to a certain level, then you get extra points, etc., etc. Um, it was quite a tricky game to play. There were a lot of rules at the start, uh, but fortunately, Sebastian is a very good teacher, so he usually spends like a day to study the game, and then he's a, uh, a, a high school teacher, uh, mathematics teacher, actually. So he's very good at explaining all these rules, and then you just have to play it to really master it. And this was one of those games that, uh, at first, it, it, it seemed a bit daunting. It's probably not a game that I would ever try to master myself by myself. Uh, there's actually a solo player uh, mode also for this game. But if you play through it with a group of people... Um, that's where you get the hang of it. Uh, and that's also where you discover your own playing style. That's another advantage of these resource management games. You can develop your own playing style. And uh, so it's, it, it, it's not cookie-cutter uh, stuff. There's, not one, there's no one way to win the game. Uh, of course, I lost miserably. <laughs> I think I ended third. Um, but it was a lot of fun and immediately made me want to play it again. Uh, and that's, I think, the hallmark of a good game is when I, I, I'm looking forward to the next time that I can play that game. So again, it's called Paladins of the West Kingdom, um, and uh, it's, it's available online. It's, I don't think it's too expensive. Oh, most of these board games nowadays are, are created by people that do um, like indie fundraising. So they'll put up a Kickstarter, for instance, and you can... Uh, uh, pay a certain amount, you get the basic game, you can add some extra 
money to get like certain perks or like deluxe uh, coins, for instance. Like this game had like real metal coins, and that gives you a an extra feel. I don't know, it makes it more real. Otherwise, it's just printed on on uh, on cardboard. Um, and I I really love that creativity that in 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 the board game industry that. If if you have a good idea and and you can make a good game, um, you don't need to have a very big publisher behind you, as long as you've got the support of your followers and and people that want to invest in your game. Then sometimes these game creators can can raise massive amounts of money and 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 create a game that's actually much much nicer than what they initially set out to to produce. So um, that was part of my Sunday. And then the only downside of, of having this board game session is that actually Sunday is my big training day for the Marathon of Rotterdam. I still am not certain that I can run that marathon because there's a waiting list. I'm on the waiting list, but I've already paid. So if there is someone else who uh, kind of leaves the race and I can you know, get access to the race, then I have to be ready. So I have to train regardless of if I'll run it or not. And I'm now at the point where I have to do these 20-mile runs. And 20 miles, that's a lot. That is a very, very long distance. I'm running it on a, th- on a treadmill because it's uh, still pretty nasty weather. We've, we've got these weekend storms. Uh, we had a storm last weekend, this weekend, and then next weekend they also predicted a storm. So it's not the best way to, uh, not the best weather to be outside for a run. So I, I run them in the attic where I've got my treadmills set up. And in order to kill time, because as you can imagine, running inside on a treadmill is a lot more boring than if you're running outside in the forest or in the, or outside in the open fields. In order to kill time, I'm watching stuff on my iPad. And so for the first hour and a half, I've been working my way through the Clone Wars. I'm trying to get through the entirety of the six seasons of Clone Wars to be ready for the premiere of the seventh season, next week so it means i have to watch a ton of episodes every day in order to make it and uh, it's really not a series that has been made for binge watching in my opinion it gets pretty repetitive there are some excellent episodes but also really weaker ones where after after seeing three like at the beginning of season four there was this three-part series about uh, an underwater war uh, on the planet of Mon Calamari, uh, which is the home planet of, of uh, Admiral Agbar. It's a trap! That guy. And every the entire episode is underwater, and it's a lot of you know laser shooting and sword fighting, laser sword fighting, lightsaber fighting underwater. It's got a very weak plot line of this you know very young calamari king that has to basically bring his kingdom together which consists of two races and one race is being seduced by uh general grievous to um join the separatists was it grievous whatever and (laughs) um but it's a very predictable plot line and then the, the rest of the episode is just fighting it's on and on and on and on and then it's not one episode Three episodes in a row, underwater, 20 minutes per episode. So for an hour I've been watching that, I was getting so fed up with that <laughs> with that plot line. I really disliked it. But I'm also kind of this, this completist. I, I want to watch every single episode. I don't want to watch it uh, only, you know, just watch a few select episodes of every season. I, I need to be able to tell my followers on YouTube that I have actually watched the entirety of the season. But goodness gracious, what a, what a chore. So anyway, then I switched to watching just YouTube videos. And the fun thing, of course, of YouTube is you watch, you click on a video and then it will automatically queue up something else that the algorithm thinks you're interested in in watching. So I watched a number of, uh, of, of YouTube SEO tutorials and then I got fed up with that and then I clicked a Chinese cooking video, which was a lot of fun. I found this channel where there's uh, this, this uh, uh, it's, it's done in voiceover, but it has um, automatic English translations. In the, so you have to turn on the subtitles and then you can order the captions. 
and then it gives you uh, so and so sometimes very hilarious, funny uh, translation of the original Chinese voiceover. Um, and because the 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 audio is pretty clear, I think it you know does a pretty good job translating um, the the recipes. And it, it it's just a whole bunch of so very very strange recipes, like I don't know, like baking cucumber, making cucumber bread, and that sort of stuff, like. Things that you'd never think of, um, but still interesting. Um, and then, but after a while, you you run, and I so I started running at six o'clock in the evening. I had not eaten dinner because I thought, let's first get rid of those twenty miles, and then I'll eat. So I knew that I'm, and I'm pr a pretty slow runner, as you know. Uh, so I knew that if I run five to six miles per hour, twenty miles. You know, I have to take sometimes a, a, a break to drink. It would probably take me about four hours. So I started at six and I counted on being done at 10. But I was watching these Chinese cooking videos and I was getting so hungry <laughs> that literally my, my stomach was growling. And I had to stop watching those <laughs> videos as well. So I was so tired of, of, of watching stuff. And then I watched an episode of The Simpsons got really tired of that and then and then I, I noticed the the later it got the slower I got so I was at 17 miles and I knew I only had to run three more miles but it was already approaching 10 o'clock in the evening so I was like oh I I'm so I wasn't I was still running okay I think I could have done physically I could have done 20 miles but just mentally I couldn't do it I was just so sick and tired of running. And I was like, my weekend is over. What have I done today? I've done masses. I've done a board game. And now I'm running for four hours and I'm done. I just want to relax. <laughs> so I just stopped at 70 miles. I was like, oh man, I, I'm just, I'm quitting. And so I, at 10 o'clock, I uh, cooked uh, some leftovers from, from Saturday. And then I watched Star Trek Picard, the fourth episode, which, which I will review, spoiler-free, in the next segment. And I don't regret doing that. I think that I made the right decision. I'm a little bit scared that since I'm not, you know, reaching my goals for these training runs, I may not be in good shape for that, for that marathon on the 5th of April. So I'm secretly hoping that I will stay on the waiting list and there won't be place for me because then I'll have a, a very good external excuse not to be ready for that marathon. <laughs> I do not like movies. They're predictable. Like the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. So, Star Trek Picard. Oh, my goodness. This is such a great series. This, this is definitely my favorite Star Trek series of all times. This is such a new level of quality. Uh, visually, it is stunning. It really looks like a... Well, like 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 a movie, um, but also narratively, the the overall plot is super intriguing. It's got a lot of great science fiction elements. What I love about it is that it is also criticism on our current society and on the issues that we're struggling with, uh, like uh, segregation. Uh, you know, all these different cultures that don't go along anymore. It's also kind of the the. And, and some Star Trek fans are are disliking this. It is the end of a dream. Star Trek was built on on the idealism of the 60s where they thought, you know, there's going to be this future where, where there, there won't be any war anymore. Uh, one of the rules, the very rigid rules that Gene Roddenberry ex established for Star Trek was that if you have a crew on a ship, they can never fight because conflicts is something of the past. They've overcome that. There's no money... Uh, very quickly, the writers of Star Trek started to realize that you don't have a story if there is no conflict. But in Picard, they really pushed that to the next level where the entire world is basically disillusioned and the ideals of that, that once formed bedrock of the of Starfleet Federation, of this, this, this big united galaxy, 
has completely fallen apart. And even Starfleet itself has betrayed its ideals and has become pragmatic and uh, sometimes even uh, racist in, in, in the way that they treat the Romulans and uh, choose the easy way and, and don't want to interfere anymore. Um, so you see that, that especially on the planet Earth, Starfleet has become very self-centered and, and, and turned inward inwardly and are no longer really you know don't don't really want to help the the rest of the of the galaxy anymore and picard being like this old school uh, admiral from from starfleet has has become very bitter and has given up on starfleet uh until of course adventure knocks on his door and he his old ideals are rekindled and he feels that he needs to get step back in, into the action and 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 kind of revive maybe his vocation as a, as an admiral from the original Starfleet idealistic you know world that he that he that he came from um, and I love that I love that tension between this this disillusioned captain that that is called back into action it feels you know his, there's this moral imperative that pushes him back into the action even though he's actually way too old to do that kind of stuff he assembles a new crew um that he i think is going to form in these ideals of the old starfleet and the reason that it resonates so much with me is that is exactly how i feel as a priest in the catholic church where oftentimes in my parishes uh but also in, in my country and in most of the Western world, I see this this kind of burned out Catholic Church that has given up on on a lot of its ideals, feels that they can no longer play a role of any significance in society, in, in our culture, and has turned inwards and, and has become self-centered in a certain way, is only preoccupied with, you know, ecclesial stuff. And a lot of the... Uh, of the... Of the uh, let's say the the polarization that you see online is are are very internal um you know inside baseball churchy battles in instead of this movement to towards the world that needs to to be loved and helped and and consoled and um i the the character of picard in many ways re reminds me a bit of pope francis uh, Pope Francis is also actually way too old to do this kind of work. I mean, he's in his 80s, for goodness sake. and But he's trying to revive the ideals, the old ancient ideals of Christianity and of Jesus who wanted to go to the poor and wanted to help those in need and wasn't really preoccupied about, you know, the the success of his own organization uh, because, you know, he was, he was just running a band of, of 12 apostles that were far from being saints, at least at that time. And, and yet uh, his only preoccupation was to save people. And Pope Francis has reignited, I think, that ideal of, of, of being a church for the poor and being close to the marginalized. And actually a church that goes out just like Starfleet did in, in the golden years of, of, of Picard's mission to go out, to step away from your, your own, you know, to go over your boundaries, to, to seek out new civilizations and to bring together the universe and try to mediate between warring factions, etc., etc., um, and, and, and Picard also has to face his own failure in upholding those ideals. So basically what Picard has done is to give up on his ideals because Starfleet betrayed the ideals. And so he, he kind of stepped away from it, just like, you know, many Catholics are, are kind of stepping away from, from their, their own faith or maybe the idealism that they used to have. And, and they got burned out because they feel that the... the, the, the the church that they, or the parish that they belong to no longer embodies these ideals. And so uh, to see Picard having to face that, and, and, and Picard comes to the realization that he himself is also uh, part of the reason that those ideals are no longer there because he's, he has given up on people. He has given up on, on his mission. But in this series, it is rekindled and it gives him new vitality and, and, and new energy. Uh, and 
it is just a great series. It's really, really deep. And uh, I can't wait to see where this goes. Um, it, 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 I, I totally understand why Patrick Stewart was convinced to come back, even though he, he, he didn't want to do a reboot of, of the original stories. He wanted to do something new, something relevant. And I think that the way this story is written, this is what science fiction is all about. It is a mirror for us so that we recognize ourselves and our predicament and overcome it. That the idealism comes also sometimes from the situation of crisis, where you have to... The, the ideals are not something external that are given to you, but it's also something that you have to offer to, to the universe, and you have to play your role in rekindling these ideals. So that's, that's probably why I can relate so much to, to Star Trek Picard. In other news... Um, Ghibli Studios, I love their their animated movies. My favorite ones are uh, My Neighbor Totoro and also um, the uh, Spirited Away movie. I think that's one of the most recent movies. A number of these Ghibli Studios movies are now on Netflix, at least in my country. And I couldn't be more excited because... If you want to buy them on Blu-ray, they're pretty expensive. Um, so I watch, I rewatched my neighbor Totoro, which is absolutely adorable. And then I discovered that there was actually a a movie that was made by Ghibli Studios. Now, from what I understand, this was made um, by kind of a new generation of animators. So it's maybe not the same quality, at least visually, it's not the same quality as My Neighbor Totoro or, or Spirited Away. But it was based on a book and on a series of books that I'm currently reading, written by the now deceased but very famous Ursula Le Guin. She wrote a whole number of stories that take place in the universe of the Earth Sea. And so there is one movie made by Ghibli Studios that is based on tales from Earth Sea. It was made in 2006. And so I was like, wow, the best of both worlds. You know, Earthsea stories plus Ghibli Studios. That has to be a success, right? Well, it turns out not so much. Not so much. This is definitely not the movie I think that that the Earthsea universe deserves. Um, I mean, it's good, but it's, it's also subpar when it comes to what... Uh, to the the level of quality that, that you're used to from Ghibli Studios, um, I was very. I was a bit puzzled. I was like, "How can this go wrong?" It, it's just, it's, you know, it's such a great combination of talents. And initially, Ursula Le Guin, because this was made in in 2006 when she was still alive, she was very enthusiastic about the 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 whole concept of of Ghibli making a, a movie based on her universe. Initially. Years before that, she had refused an animated version of her stories because she, she was thinking Disney. And she didn't feel like the Disney tradition could do justice to her books and to her plight as a writer. Uh, but with Ghibli, she loved uh, the My Neighbor Totoro that, that made her a fan of Ghibli Studios. And so she, she greenlit the movie based on Earthsea. And then later on, she was quite disappointed. It was not what she expected it to be. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> um, and so she uh, wrote um, a reaction to the, to, the, to the animated movie, which is interesting. If you've seen the movie on Netflix, definitely go read um, her, her, her article on it, because I've, and I will link to it in the, in the show notes. However, I still think it's worth seeing. For me, it has helped me visualize the Earthsea universe. I, I'm a very visual person, and when I'm reading a book, sometimes I'm I have trouble kind of forming a mental image. Like when I when I, now that I'm reading um, the uh, Wheel of Time series, um, I notice that I'm visualizing it um, like some of the video games that I'm playing, like. Lord of the Rings Online, or just a, a game that I've started playing uh, this past week, which is called Kingdom Come. Uh, still free, I think still, maybe if you're listening to this, it's no longer free, but if you go to Epic, uh, the Epic Game Store, it's a platform kind of similar to Origin or uh, Steam, they they give you a game for free for, your, for you to keep forever, uh, every week. 
And so this week it was Kingdom Come, and it's a game that takes place in the Middle Ages. And, and that an entire environment is very compatible with the Wheel of Time series. So I kind of picture the Wheel of Time books when I'm reading it mentally as, you know, games like that. Um, but with Earthsea, it was a bit more tricky. I didn't really know what to, how to imagine it. And maybe also because I'm kind of speed reading these books, so I'm not paying attention too much to a lot of the descriptions. And having seen this animated version of the Earthsea books has helped me form this, kind of give me a backdrop for the other books that I still need to, to read. So that's basically my, um review of these TV series. <laughs> Catholics rock! And it is time for a visit to the Peculiar Bunch where we talk about all these weird Catholic things, things that you may not really understand that well. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? And today I want to talk about maybe the most important document that was written by Pope Francis in this year so far. And that is, of course, the Amazonian Senate Exhortation. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. Last year, for two weeks, people gathered from all over the world and mostly from the Amazon countries in the Vatican to discuss the situation in the country on multiple levels. You've got the ecological uh, crisis that is take, that is happening there, the destruction of the rainforest. There is also a social dimension. Um, it's a very poor region and a lot of people are exploited uh, by this, th these sometimes international economic powers. And then you have an ecclesial dimension also to the crisis, and that is it is such a vast area and so impenetrable sometimes because it's all you know rainforest that the church has trouble being present in the small local Catholic communities. And then there is also a cultural dimension. How can the church speak to the people of that region in its own cultural language and how should the church maybe adapt its its liturgy and uh, the way in which she she tries to 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 communicate with the people that live in the Amazonian area? That was a uh, a, 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 a gathering that uh, lasted for two weeks. Pope Francis was present during the communal sessions and also read the reports from all the the subgroups that were formed. As you can recall, there was also a, a bit of a controversial uh, time because there were certain groups that were extremely concerned, to put it mildly, about some of the tendencies that they thought were going to uh, be a threat to the universal church. Um, and it was mm, kind of highlighted by two big controversies. The first one was a ceremony that took place in the Vatican Gardens uh, before the Synod got going, uh, in which also some um, symbols were, were used that were uh, judged to be pagan symbols by some people. And, and then uh, there were these wooden statues of a pregnant or of pregnant women that were seen as a pagan symbol of the you know the mother earth goddess and so uh, a guy took them from a church in the middle of the well actually i think it was in early morning and threw them in the river to the tiber um and then got a lot of well mixed reactions let's say <laughs> people that agreed with him this is the right thing to do other people that were outraged you know this is so disrespectful of those uh, local cultures um, and then there was the whole discussion about um, celibacy and the question that was asked by the people that participated in this synod is if if the eucharist is the center of of catholic life what should we do in you know a lot of these areas in the Amazon Amazon uh, region, where Catholics cannot you know have or don't have priests, and priests will only visit once or twice a year, so they can only celebrate the sacraments once or twice a year. It's not just the Eucharist, but also for confession you need a priest. So if 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 we want the Eucharist to be the the nourishing center of these of these Catholics, shouldn't we? change 
shouldn't we do something about the the shortage of priests? And one of the suggestions that the synod did was maybe we should allow uh, for uh, viri probati, um, for proven men uh, that may have may are may be married, may have a family, but are you know somewhat older, don't have the responsibility responsibility for young children anymore, have received an adequate uh, formation. Shouldn't we? make an exception for these people and ordain them to be priests in those difficult-to-reach areas. And so, leading up to the publication of this post-synodal exhortation, which is basically the Pope reflecting on everything that he has heard and has read during the synod, um, there was a lot of anticipation um, some very concerned anticipation, other you know hopeful anticipation. Maybe the Pope will make some changes that will ultimately also affect the rest of the Church. And then you may have already heard about the news that the this this document appeared, uh, which is available for free on the website of the Vatican in English. In case you want to check it out, it's called Querida Amazonia, which is uh, Spanish for beloved Amazon. Those are the first words of the. Exhortation. That's also the, always the, the way in which the Vatican chooses names, tri- titles for these uh, for these uh, documents. They will take the first few words in Latin, and that will become the the name. Um, so, the beloved Amazon. I have just finished reading the document, and it is. Uh, I can understand why some people have been disappointed because it doesn't really propose too many very specific solutions to the problems. Um, nor does it want to. So there is nothing said here about the ordination of viri probati or, you know, kind of changing the requirements of of priestly celibacy. Um, But also in the other parts of the document, you will find very few practical proposals by Pope Francis. And so some people said, well, (laughs) some people were very happy. It's like, oh, Thank goodness, there's there's nothing in there that's going to upset the rest of the of of the of the church of the global church, um, but there were also a lot of people that said, "Well, this is lacking, you know, concreteness. It's too it's too much of a of of just a, you know some 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 meditations." For me, this is the strength, and it's probably also exactly what Pope Francis wanted to do. He is as a Jesuit, used to discernment, to the process of discernment, and knows that his thoughts are a contribution to a process that may take much longer than a few years to finally produce its fruits. And so he offers this document as a meditation, almost a contemplation of the situation, um, but he's not excluding the possibility that um, in the near future, or maybe in the long-term future, there will be more practical decisions that will taken will be taken by either the Curia, uh, the, the global church, or by the Pope, whether it's him or his successor, or his future, future successor, uh, or by local bishops. So uh, it's not that he, that he doesn't want to take any practical measures, but I think he is uh, he has decided that that is something for later. What he first wants to do is to to create awareness about what is going on in the Amazon and why does this concern all of us. So what struck me immediately is that he addresses this not just to the people from the Amazon regions, but he addresses this document to the entire church, the worldwide church. And a number of the issues that he mentions are easily translatable to other parts of the world where similar problems are at play. And that, for me, made it so interesting. Of course, I'm not going to give you a full summary of what I learned from reading this. I can absolutely recommend reading this. Sometimes church documents may seem boring and, uh, and, and very theological. Not this document. This reads like a poem, almost. It is beautifully written. Um, it is uh, full of... It's a very spiritual document, um, so it's definitely something you could use in prayers. For instance, read a, a few paragraphs uh, every day and then just use that as to, to nourish your, uh, your meditation or your daily prayers. Um, it is uh, sometimes very moving, sometimes also very shocking. 
Pope Francis cites sometimes authors that describe the situation, the human conditions of people suffering there, and uh, he doesn't mince his words. It's sometimes really, really raw. Um, but it's also combined with beautiful passages about uh, creation in the Amazon and about the beauty of God, of God's imprint in, in the, uh, the diversity, both the ecological but also in the cultural diversity of, of, the, of the people that live there and, and of the situation of the Amazon. The, what struck me and what I want to mention here is that I am currently working on the final episode of my Down Under trilogy. Um, and so this week I'm compiling all the material that I shot during my last visit to New Zealand. And that is the most challenging episode to put together because I've got a lot of, of stuff that I filmed on beautiful locations, but I was wondering how can I really give this extra depth? This should not just be about Tolkien and about the movies that Jackson filmed there. Uh, I, I should make I should kind of combine the 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 footage that I shot in all these Hobbit related locations with a, a bigger message and a message that is both linked to the the plight of the local church in New Zealand and maybe also you know something that we could all relate to. And this document, Querida Amazonia, gave me the clue uh, and uh, gave me the. Uh, the clue and the glue, I could say, to put to to combine all this together, and I'll just um, uh, I'll, I'll just highlight some episodes that I read and that I uh, copied here in a document um, that I was like immediately uh, that I could immediately combine with the story that I'm trying to tell in this uh, New Zealand episode. There's this uh, um, passage that Pope Francis writes about the importance of old myths and tales of, uh, uh, not necessarily Christian tales, but the, the mythological uh, narrative structure of Amazonian culture that we really need to integrate in our, in our discussion and we need to listen to that narrative tradition. So here's the quote. For centuries, the Amazonian people passed down their cultural wisdom orally with myths, legends, and tales, as in the case of those primitive storytellers who traversed, this is a quote, who traversed the forests, bringing stories from town to town, keeping alive a community which, without the umbilical cord of those stories, distance and lack of communication would have fragmented and dissolved. And that is why, says Pope Francis, it is important to let older people tell their long stories and for young people to take the time to drink deeply from that source. Well, I can easily combine that with the, what my experience in both Australia and, uh, and New Zealand, where these ancient mythologies uh, play a very important role among the Aboriginals and among the Maoris in New Zealand, um, and have that same function of, of both explaining or narratively explaining the role of mankind within the, 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 this cosmology of creation. And a lot of these old myths have warning, are, are tales of caution against exploiting creation and destroying it just for your own short-term uh, gain. Um, and it's surprising how many of these ancient myths, and when I say ancient, I mean, mean some of these stories are thousands of years old, but how much they already carry this awareness that, you, that, that mankind should be modest when it comes to its interaction with nature and that you can't just destroy it uh, because then it will turn against mankind. That's in the ancient stories that I heard about uh, and that I researched for my Australia episodes. Uh, so in the Aboriginal tales, you already find these cautionary tales. Um, but this is also something that is very much part of Tolkien's uh, Middle Earth stories. There is a very strong ecological undercurrent in his stories. Um, and to illustrate that, the easiest way to picture that is what's, what you see Saruman do. Saruman is the prototypical, you know, dark side wizard who is no longer 
serving creation and serving the peoples that live in that creation, but he is exploiting it. He is uh, enslaving the creatures and 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 exploiting nature for his own you know power grab and you so you, peter jackson does a great job in the second uh tolkien uh, in the second uh lord of the rings movie where you see saruman you know destroying the forests and using the wood for his machinery and it's a, it has a very strong industrial uh tone to it and then of course the ends these living trees will end up destroying the realm uh, of uh, and, and the reign of Saruman and taking back nature. Um, and, and this is something that Tolkien himself has specifically introduced, you know, deliberately introduced in his stories. And there are many other um, aspects of, of the Tolkien uh, stories that, that want to really uh, write a mythology that can be used also as a mirror for us, the reader, to to realize that we are not the masters of the universe, and that the 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 earth and and creation belong to all generations, not to not just to this generation. Um, and it's also a cautionary tale against uh, these power hungry, you know, entities like. You know, Saruman and Sauron. Also, in a way, look at the uh, way Mordor looks. There is no, there's nothing growing in Mordor. It's all destruction, and so it's it's a cautionary tale against the uh, destructive nature of 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 this this in, insatiable hunger for power and wealth. Um. So Tolkien also dives into these ancient stories. He was, of course, a a, a scholar who studied these ancient tales and ancient mythological stories um, and retold them in a certain way in, in the Silmarillion and also in, in especially the later editions of The Hobbit and, and certainly in The Lord of the Rings, uh, integrated those ancient story elements in a new story that can serve as a fairy tale, as a, as a new mythology for um, the audiences of his time. Uh, Another part of the of the exhortation that struck me was uh, the Pope's reflections on intercultural differences and how uh, people have to learn how to live together and how you can learn from these different cultures and how also the, the global church can learn from the specific cultural uh, richness of the Amazonian region. Uh, here's a quote. If the care of people and the care of ecosystems are inseparable, this becomes especially important in places where the forest is not a resource to be exploited. It is a being or various beings with which we have to relate. The wisdom of the original peoples of the Amazon region inspires care and respect for creation with a clear consciousness of its limits and prohibits its abuse. To abuse nature is to abuse our ancestors, our brothers and sisters, to abuse creation and the creator, and to mortgage the future. This is stuff that you also find in Tolkien. Um, and the 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 um, uh, let's say the the added the sum of all these different cultures that you find in Middle Earth. Think of the dwarves, the elves, humans, hobbits. Um, in in the Lord of the Rings, these. Four cultures form one alliance, one fellowship to protect Middle-earth against the usurpation by Sauron and his minions. And so, in many ways, that, that's, that's, a, that's a story for today that warns us against uh, and, and kind of rallies these different cultures to come together for the protection of the world that is our common home. It's very much, uh, you know, on the forefront in Laudato Si. Um... So, the the other thing that that Pope Francis does in this exhortation is to quote a lot of the, the highlights from Laudato Si, especially where he gives us a theology of creation, um, where it's it's uh, there is divine presence in nature. Not that you have to uh, make nature or Mother Earth itself a divinity, but 
in creation, creation tells a theological tale of God because the imprint of God, the creator, is visible in the beauty of creation. Um, so here's a quote from Laudato Si in this exhortation. The very flowers of the field and the birds which his human eyes contemplated and, and admired, and he's talking about Jesus there, uh, are now imbued with his radiant presence. For all these reasons, we believers encounter in the Amazonian region a theological locus, a place, a space where God himself reveals himself and summons his sons and daughters. So creation as a place where you can discover God. And that's also a reason to protect it. Um, he also cites John Paul II, St. John Paul II, uh, when he addressed indigenous people in America, he reminded them that a faith that does not become culture is a faith not fully accepted, not fully reflected upon, not faithfully lived. So this is uh, quoted by Pope Francis in the part about the cultural dimension of the Amazon and how much it is important for the Catholic faith to also enculturate the Amazonian culture and make the language of the Amazonian region its own language and to seek for forms of expression that can speak to the culture that is already there in the Amazon region. So the enculturation has always been fundamental for the Catholic Church. You cannot just, you know, implant these these Western forms in in different parts of the world. There's always this back and forth, and of course, there's also purification that is needed of the local cultures. But there is this 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 interplay between the culture of the church and the local culture that is essential for the success of evangelization in that area. Um, so th there are some beautiful, beautiful passages. I've been talking about this way too long, but but by all means, go and read it yourself. There will be a link to the document in the show notes. It is so worth your time. And for me, it was very inspiring in, in, in creating the narrative for my New Zealand episode. And it gave me ideas on how to combine the the Tolkien story or what Tolkien tries to do and the story that create that God himself is telling us through creation and in the movies I think this these worlds come together in such a beautiful visual way all right that's enough uh, for this segment let's quickly pay a visit to the book club when did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics last night the packet the extraction theory papers Am I the only one who did the reading? I'm currently reading two new books. Uh, concurrently, I'm actually listening to the audiobooks because I don't have the uh, the Kindle versions of the books. Um, it is a series that is uh, starting with the book The Lies of Locke Lamora. It is a highly rated series about uh, a guild of thieves. And I have to say, not really my cup of tea when I read the description, but now that I'm reading it, it is so well written. It is really sucking you in right from the first chapter, and that is quality, because normally with fantasy books, I have a hard time getting into the story. Um, but uh, The Lies of, of Locke Lamora is very, very well written, um, and I'm really enjoying it. And it's a speed, speedy read, even though it's a pretty big book. The second book that I'm reading is a classic, uh, it is The Dark Tower, the first book of the Dark Tower series. Um, and this one is called, of course, The Gunslinger. Um, I have seen the movie that was based on this book by Stephen King, by the way. Um, and it was pretty terrible. <laughs> I don't remember much, but I just know that it was the, 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 the pre sequels to the movie were canceled because the movie didn't do well. And if you see the movie, you totally understand why, because it just doesn't work. But again, the movie itself is helpful for me to visualize the novel. But the novel is so much more enjoyable than, than, than the movie was. And I'm hearing that later Dark Tower uh, stories and sequels are really good, really well written and very emotionally impactful. So I'm I've undertaken the 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 quest of of working my way through the Dark Tower. Maybe not a good idea to to do that in the same year that I'm trying to read the entirety of the Wheel of Time series because we're talking about very long books, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages. But I'm sometimes I feel like I just have to kind of step away from a series 
um, instead of binge reading. And the same is true for, for, for television series as well. You know, binge watching The Clone Wars for me is tough. Sometimes I just need to watch an episode of Picard just to gather my strength and before I dive back into The Clone Wars. So those would be my two tips of the week. And of course, I'll revisit the review of these books as soon as I'm done reading them. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well... All your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. There's one more thing, and that is the tech segment of the week. And today I've got my topic handed to me on a plate by my uh, live audience is currently watching. And Keith Little is commenting on the green screen that I'm using for these Facebook. I'm streaming this on Facebook uh, for, for the Facebook streams. And he writes in the chat room, that green screen, wow, as a podcaster getting into video, I would love to see a behind the scenes video of how your video is set up, Father. You've mentioned certain aspects before, but I'd love to see the full setup. It looks great. Well, Stick around, because that's exactly what I'm going to explain right now. So, uh, the green screen setting here is actually super simple. And the reason that it works so well is mostly thanks to software, not hardware. Uh, the green screen itself is just that. It is a green screen that I bought for maybe a hundred bucks in a... You can buy it online, you can buy it in a... I bought it at, the, at a, uh, you know, uh, specialist store... Uh, in Hilversum, um, and it is basically a foldable big green screen. I can even stand in front of it if I want to, but for podcasting that would be a little bit uh, fatiguing because these shows usually take an hour or so. Um, and the green screen itself uh, is um, something that you can see if I turn off the background itself. Um, which is a function, by the way, let's first talk about the software. What am I using to do these green, live green screen uh, uh, shows? It is an Apple-based software called Ecamm. Uh, it's now subscription-based. I was grandfathered into a subscription because I bought the program when it was still something you could just buy and then, you know, they'd give updates. Uh, but it's even for a subscription model, it is very affordable and I love the way they keep updating this with new features. And the green screen feature was something that was lacking for many years and that they've just recently added it and it works really well. And what strikes me is it works well even on low spec computers so i'm using a, a macintosh um that is an, an i5 based macintosh it's not very very strong you know very powerful it's got a very you know medium strength uh graphics card but it still does the green screen really really well so what i'm going to do now and i'll i'll describe it for the listeners of course i'm going to turn off the green screen function and all of a sudden you will see the actual color of the green screen it is lit with nothing else but ceiling lights very boring led you know slightly warm white ceiling panels that are here in the studio i don't use any extra lighting that the software is that good what you need to make sure, of course, uh, is that the lighting, when you use green screen, is diffused. And the, that's what these LED panels do. Uh, they diffuse the light, um, and that is important to, to get this uniform green screen. But the software is also very you know versatile, and you can say, well, hey, uh, if you still see a little bit of, uh, uh, of the green screen, because it's unevenly lit, you can also make the tolerance of the of the green screen um, interpretation of the software. You can set that and, well, just kind of tweak some levers until it works for you. Um, what I'm using to film myself in front of the green screen is super cheap. It's just a webcam and not even a very good one. It's a Logitech webcam, the, like an HD webcam that I bought a couple of years ago. You can pick it up for... I don't know, 60, 70 bucks maximum. And uh, 
but it but it works fine. It does what it needs to do. Um, fortunately, it comes with a little bit of a driver software that allows me to turn off autofocus, for instance. Um, but it is the Logitech software is terrible, terrible. How does Jar Jar say that? It is really terrible, and it's surprising because their cameras are good, but the software I don't know why it has only gotten worse over over the years. So if I Stand up, for instance, the, 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 what is it? The lighting will change and it will get messed up. There's no way to, to set, for instance, the frame rate or anything that normally, you know, camera software should be able to do. I'm using this because I'm also work, I'm, this software allows me to zoom in a little bit. And I need to do that because I'm sitting a little bit away from the background. There's about... I would say 90 centimeters between my chair and the background, you need to have a little bit of separation. Otherwise, you get shadows on the green screen. And shadows are a different, different type. You know, they're darker green. So you, you, that may show up in the final, in the final uh, image. Um, so, but because I'm sitting a bit farther away from the background... Uh, I need to zoom in on, on myself to cut off the edges of the green screen. But I can also use this software to zoom out, and then all of a sudden, you will see the, well, the fringes of the, of the green screen. You will see on uh, my right side some uh, cords that are hanging there that are a little bit out of focus, and even that is, n is done by the software itself. It's got a blurring function. Well, actually, no, I think this is actually just camera doing a little bit of uh, background blur, uh, which is also good because it will blur, it will blur out c certain, you know, s uneven spots in the background. Um, and this camera also has a, um, a widescreen and a standard setting, and you can change between NTSC frequency, 60 hertz, or PAL frequency, 50 hertz, and since I'm in the Netherlands, I need to set it to 50. Otherwise, you'll get this flickering from the LEDs that are also tuned to, uh, to the uh, frequencies of, of, of the electricity here in, in the Netherlands. So um, it's just a green screen against the wall. There's nothing special about it. No extra lights. I'm zooming in slightly in the software. I turn off the autofocus. Otherwise, it keeps you know hunting for focus. Um, and you can also set the white balance, fix it. Um, the rest usually, you know, it works. The software is versatile enough to just deal with whatever you, uh, you set. So, um, I'm back to a slightly zoomed in version of myself. Uh, and then in the software, I just, uh, you can choose a picture. So I've, uh, I always go to Pixabay. That's where you can get uh, uh, copyright-free images. And then depending on what the topic is that I want to talk about, I'll just insert that one image and it will automatically blur it, blur it if I want to in the background. So here I've got this Amazonian rainforest picture and I can turn off the blur and it will immediately make it very sharp. But that also makes it look much more as you know green screen stuff because normally it wouldn't be this sharp. So I'll turn on blur background. And I can also use that for if I, for instance, for my YouTube videos, I do sometimes I do book review. I have this kind of IKEA-like background that shows you a nice couch and warm light, and there's a this this stone wall and some books in the background. It looks very cozy and uh, very much the kind of background that I need for a topic like that. But I also have, for instance, the Jedi Library. If I want to do a Star Wars show, I'll just uh, drag and drop that to the background, and then all of a sudden I'm sitting in the in the Jedi Library. Um, I even have more kind of homely stuff, like a window. Found this a generic picture of a kitchen window that looks, you know, in terms of colors. Uh, some some of these backgrounds don't work that well with the colors of the camera, so you have to experiment a little bit with what works with the settings of your of your camera. Um, I have a very bright one that is almost like pink and purple, and it is window shades. Um, and 
it is a kind of a weird background because I that would never be in any of my you know studios or at home. I would never have this color, but it looks it's very vibrant and it looks immediately very good on on social media. So um, the trick with backgrounds is always choose backgrounds that have already a little bit of depth. So, for instance, I've got Senator Palpatine's uh, offices. If I want to talk about the dark side of the force. Uh, it's, it helps if there's a window in the background or a bit of a corridor. I've got a medieval background that is a little bit, you know, shows me as if I'm sitting in, in, a, in a monastery or in the kitchen of a, uh, of, an old, of a medieval rectory. Or I can use very abstract things like, I don't know, something that looks like uh, the sea. Um, it all depends. And, you know, with green screen, it can be anything. Uh, anything you drop in there will, uh, will work. So, um, and that's it. That's all there is to it. That, that, the software is doing the rest. And, and I can use Ecamm to stream, to stream straight to Facebook. And, um, and I can even record this, which I've been doing quite a bit for my YouTube videos, where I record part of my podcast and then repurpose it. I'll just cut out the, the, the fragment that has one topic and I'll post that as a YouTube video. And that has also really helped me grow my YouTube channel because the downside of podcasting is you talk about way too many things. So that is the, that's the worst thing you can do in YouTube. On YouTube, you have to be very specific. One topic, one video uh, instead of, hey, here's my show. And I talk about five, six different topics. That is great if you're listening to this in the car and you want to have a little bit di- you know, of a diverse, entertaining show but for video it's it's uh, it's really really terrible also for seo it's it's uh, podcasting is not a very good good medium for for search engine optimization so the camera is just a simple super cheap logitech webcam uh, at home i went for my um, gaming videos i'm using the logitech brio which is a very expensive 4k webcam but it uses the same crappy software so it doesn't look any better than the one that i'm using here so don't go for the more expensive logitech uh, uh webcams this software works fine providing you have enough light that is very important so i've got four led panels here in the ceiling and i need all four of them if i would turn off two it would already be a problem because for green screen you need a lot of good light and of course the webcam has a very tiny opening. It's a small camera. So the more light, the better it is. And even this one, probably not strong enough. If you want to up your game, you want to get an even better result in green screen, then use a Canon camera. Most Canon cameras can be hooked up immediately via USB to a Mac and also to OSB, which is kind of the free uh, streaming alternative on, on PC. It's also available for Mac, so it's called OSB. And you can uh, also hook up Canon cameras. It doesn't work with Sony. doesn't work with uh, um, uh, other brands. Uh, what is it? Uh, well, it doesn't matter. Anyway, it works with, with Canon for some reason, and it gives you a very clear, high-quality image. And, of course, the lenses of these DSLRs or mirrorless cameras are much wider, so... You don't need that much light to still make it work. And uh, with that, I think it is time to wrap things up. I've been talking for more than an hour now. If you want to listen to even more podcasts, make sure to also subscribe to The Walk. And if you want to become a patron and support me on a monthly basis, you'll get another show like this every week available on your Patreon account. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. And go to patreon.com slash fatheroderick for more info. (laughs) 